of their areas, of their hometown, uh, or the areas of interest. Usually every um, like oblast, every regional center has uh, the group chat where everyone's just sharing information, data, gossips, even speculations, you name it. Uh, then they switch on the TV marathon, which is probably um, running in in the house for not 24-7, but I would say in the background, you can hear it, I would say, 10 hours per day or so. Um, then usually it's a Facebook reports of the general staff. And I, I tried actually to bring my... Um, parents and IDPs to Twitter because here you can find uh, information faster, you can check it faster, you can um, uh, fact check it obviously much faster uh, but there are uh, credible Ukrainian newsletters like Narnia, but you still have to uh, double check who is the one writing the report because sometimes uh, like it happened with the, like a lot of times with the New York Times you you you, you kind of see the, the like for Ukraine. We we see the headline the the New York Times now. We're just like nah, just because of the couple really really um inconsistent and uh, honestly uh, full of blood and flight reports or like with that military analyst for God's sake. Uh, so yeah, it, it depends on which level you are and it depends how uh, involved you are in the actual process. Because being in the process, I, I, I've been being in space, uh, uh, you've been over, uh, over, over flooded sometimes with the data, news and so on. And uh, the, the, the life has taught me how to uh, filtrate, I suppose, filter them, yeah. Uh, but overall, my parents and parents of a lot of other people and even uh, my peers, they usually just read everything and then come to some sort of um, analysis on their own, what's happening. Thank you, Verlaine. Um, I hope that uh, it covers it really well uh, from, from different perspectives. And I think, you know, comparing to you or comparing to special the song cat, right? It's, it's very, it's very different approaches for, for different people with different backgrounds and, uh, and let's say different so social networks, so to speak. Right. Um, okay, I'm really glad we have CJ back. Uh, CJ, how long are you around for? Because we had a bunch of questions earlier for you that uh, we couldn't answer because you weren't here. Yeah, I'm here for 20 minutes. Okay, excellent. Um, in which case, actually, because we have a bunch of questions, uh, Lisa and Vic, would you mind if I if I keep you on the back burner for a little bit because we need to kind of get some stuff covered with CJ. CJ, there are news of allegedly Sweden sending some archers to Ukraine. Uh, what are these archers and isn't this a bit too Agincourt for, uh, for modern warfare? Well, I mean, I know Agincourt. I'm not sure I get uh, the reference there, but I would say, you know... Because they had uh, lots of archers because the oh, recent British... Just, God, okay. that's a good one. Okay, you, that went over my head at first. No, so in terms of... Uh, well, first of all, the only videos I've seen were stock videos. So I think there's a little bit of confusion of whether they're in-country or not. And uh, the other ones that were posted were actually the, I think it's the Donas or the Danas from Czechia. So I'm not quite sure yet if they've made it in. I think, um, I mean, it would be nice, especially if it was the 24 number that people were throwing around. That's enough for a whole brigade. Um, and also being more 155 systems is, is great for, you know, the um, versatility of the ammo given. But um, 
but I haven't seen anything official, official, uh, definitely not from any Ukrainian sources that that's the case right now. And <clears throat> CJ, so uh, an archer, what is it? It's a Swedish 155 howitzer wheeled. Um, how good is it? I mean, uh, it's hard to, t- to say. I know we've, um, the United States Army and the Marines have trained in Sweden, even though obviously not a NATO country yet. Um, and they, they seem to give it some, some good praise. But uh, I don't know if it's been battle tested because I don't think it's been exported to any other countries um, that have used it in any sort of combat setting yet. But I've heard good things, at least. So is it the same thing as the French Caesar or not quite? Without like having the uh, fact sheet, I would say generally yes. It depends um, on the auto loader, but but the the thing about the the gun placement on it, at least I can tell you from looking at a picture of it, is that it's seated far in the rear, which means it can have a longer barrel, which means it can you know pretty simply shoot a lot farther, like the Caesar, further than uh, other self-propelled howitzers like an M109 or or others. So um, you know. And the high mobility of it, too, will be really beneficial as, um, you know, Ukraine begins this counteroffensive. Um, you know, maybe it's already begun, I guess. And so my understanding is it's a, it's a completely auto-loaded system and the, the crew never even has to leave the cab of the truck, right? Basically, it's a truck. It looks like a truck. Um, what are the benefits of that for, you know, operations and the, the ability to move more quickly after shooting? Some might say scooting after shooting. Well, the, the pros are going to be, um, you know, first off, that it's uh, a lot more survivable generally to like harassing fire, for example. You know, um, and this is a double edged sword because on the one hand, you know, since everything is self-contained, it can take like pretty much, you know, 12.7 or, or 50 caliber in the NATO Army's uh, rounds pretty well. You know, some artillery shrapnel. But the trade off. And again, this is like a sweeping generalization is if you have a lot of um ammo and it's all self-contained it also means it can uh, be a pretty devastating if you get a direct hit um, also too with the amount of crew involved it is pretty small and so that tends to be uh, generally a benefit especially when you know you're trying to man a lot of artillery systems the only um, you know downside there is you know if you lose the system you lose everyone in it as well whereas in the triple seven or another towed howitzer piece uh, even if you get a drone hit on it like we've seen and the crew die, either the piece survives or the, there's enough people and they're spread out that it's not like you lose um, both the people and the gun. So that's kind of the trade-off there generally. And just having more of these quite long-ranged 155 howitzers, right? This would, genu- this would genuinely help Ukraine, right? It would genuinely help Ukraine with hitting more easily, more targets deeper beyond the front lines. Um, but why wouldn't they just use a high march for everything that they have to hit so far beyond the front lines? Why would why would they even be considering using such a tube artillery system? Yeah, so you know we we've seen what tube artillery can do in uh, you know very strategic uh, level battles like the one for Snake Island, where basically it was uh, you know we'll we'll put aside right now how much the Ukrainian howitzer had to play into that, but it was definitely at least Caesar's that played a large role. So at at thirty five to forty kilometers, which is pretty much well out of range of Russian tubed artillery, and it's somewhat in the range of the middle-grade rocket artillery systems, you have the ability to almost affect every Russian system that they can bring to bear, which is why, um, you know, having more of these is good. And also, too, what's important to remember is, you know, these things are very accurate, and they have the ability to shoot unguided and guided artillery rounds, artillery rounds which only run for about $600 to $800 each if they're uh, unguided. And so in a long war where you need to shoot a lot of ammo, you know, being able to destroy targets effectively with, you know, 20 rounds of, let's just say, $1,000 of, you know, uh, per round. So $20,000 to take out, you know, a tank platoon 
compared to, you know, basically um, a, a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand for one high Mars rocket. That honestly, for a single target or a platoon, is isn't ideal. And you're going to actually get, um, you know, in this hypothetical situation I've created, two hundred artillery rounds is, you know, basically two thousand pounds of high explosive uh, and shrapnel raining down, whereas the the high Mars is only going to be two hundred pounds. So, kind of depends on um, the economics of it, honestly, when we're talking about a, a very uh, huge war. And one last question for me before I pass it off to finance. Um, twenty rounds. I think twenty twenty one rounds is what the uh, autoloader magazine has its has its capacity. Um, how much is that? How much damage can twenty one five five rounds do? So you know it's interesting because the way the doctrine is written right now is you know most of the studies done and most of the understanding really goes back to um, you know American artillery, which is quite older, and also um, it goes back to not really drone corrected artillery. So the numbers for planning that we have for taking out certain targets are actually in desperate need of an update, which this war is thankfully providing. So, you know, based on what we've seen with the ability to take out uh, Russian artillery batteries and also Russian ammo depots, 20 rounds is enough to take out, you know, at least four to five artillery pieces or one ammo dump pretty well. So definitely um, a pretty good use of resources um, if you have drones helping you to correct, of course. It's about a thousand dollars per round, right? You said yeah, generally it's um you know for unguided maybe a little bit cheaper, but I would just use that to, for the cost of the primer and the the propellant as well. Very good, uh, finance. I I think it's not a secret that these things are probably the number one target of Russia in the field right now. Have they managed to hit any of them so far? Given how much destruction they're 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 causing, I, I assume you're talking about uh, high Mars, right? Finance. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about a high Mars lot. Uh, yes, I'm talking about a high Mars system. Well, they've claimed they've destroyed two. Um, I don't believe it for two reasons. One, the video they showed was uh, not a HIMARS system that they were hitting. And also the system they claimed to be destroying that was HIMARS. They actually missed it and published that video anyway. So I'm not quite sure why they would do that. Um, maybe a Russian. They, they, specifically, they hit a tree, right? Yeah, they hit a tree next to, I mean, there's a chance there maybe could have been ammo stored there. And again, this is the thing now that all Russians on Telegram and everyone is asking for, you know, please at least destroy the ammo or also destroy the American satellites. So again, good luck with both of those things. But um, the other reason why I don't think they've been able to destroy any is if you look at the, the, the basically the spread of the strikes over the last three days in terms of how much terrain they're covering, they really couldn't necessarily do that with less systems. So that leads me to believe just based on, you know, the reports from both sides that they, they very much have not lost any yet. And now, you know, even if they were to lose all of the systems, you know, they still have the nine M two seventies that are either there or on the way they still have the ammunition. I mean, that's, what's so good about this system is it's part of this logistical network of, you know, starting from, you know, uh, deep uh, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, ISR drones, going to the launchers themselves, going to the ammo and the ammo placement, like the system's already in place now. It's kind of too late, you know, for Russians. And this is what they're saying as well, because on the flip side, and I kind of posted about it yesterday, but, you know, the Russian logistics system cannot change on it at all, really, but especially on a dime uh, because of two things. One, of course, is they, they put their ammo dumps forward in order to maintain a high rate of fire, which, of course, makes it prone to uh, enemy artillery. Secondly, it's so centralized because they don't really trust NCOs or enlisted people. So officers have to approve everything, which means this ammo ends up generally getting stored in less and less places. And last but not least, it's not adaptive or flexible, right? It, because it's centralized, therefore, 
it is put in a situation where it's very heavily planned and not open to any changes, whether it be a shock to the logistics system, a change to the battle plans, et cetera. So you have all three of these things working against each other. Um, and even if Russia was able to take out all the HIMARS in a single day, it wouldn't change um, that deterioration that's already happened. But not very likely, considering, as you mentioned, finance, Ukraine's going to be protecting them. They're going to be 40 to 50 kilometers behind Ukrainian lines. And if Russia is trying to use S-300s uh, as a ground variant and they've run out of basically precision guided munitions for buildings and they're switching to anti-ship missiles, I mean, we saw yesterday they are bringing up all of their Tachkas, which is actually quite surprising, from reserves. And again, they, they publicly claim they didn't use these things anymore, of course, when the Kramatorsk bombing happened. Uh, it just shows you how effing desperate they are. And it's uh, really a great place for Ukraine to be in at this point, much better than, you know, say, a couple of weeks ago. And yeah, I was going to add that. They're firing late at night and early in the morning, so they're definitely using night as cover for the um, high Mars. They're not using them during the day by all accounts, by, look, by the looks of things. Yeah, I think there were a few high Mars strikes that were sort of in either very early morning or, or sort of towards the evening while there was still daylight. But you're right, generally they seem to be genuinely operating at night, right? Uh, Finan? Uh, the, have the Atacams... Uh ammunition been spotted in theater yet no but we we uh, we may have had our first evidence of actually a high mars round again i don't know if it's been verified yet but apparently russia claims to out of the 200 fired at them have shot down one which is um about damn time considering that they're theoretically supposed to have much more advanced air defense systems um again still waiting on confirmation but the the missile that i saw that had been downed uh, again, allegedly was um, uh, a Gimler's round, not an Attackums round. But again, I don't know if it was maybe an old training pick repurposed or what. And the round was completely intact, which makes me think if they took it down, it's maybe more likely that they were able to jam it or use electronic warfare as opposed to shooting it down because it, it had like no signs of damage. So again, a little bit up in the air exactly um, what's going on there. Isn't there talks for um, Biden to send six of them to Ukraine? 60 uh, HIMARS or 60 ATACMs? Uh, HIMARS, apparently. If you're saying he's sending 60, I would. I have not seen that bit of news, but I would no, be very... I was, asking, I, was, I was asking a question. I've seen, I've, I've seen an article saying that, that he's sending 60 over, but I don't believe it. Well, what I'll say is that's important, is that so far the U.S. has trained 160 people on HIMARS, which is about enough to field between 40 and 50, and they're still training more. So I would look to the fact that if they're going to train, you know, let's just say this training keeps going for another couple months, enough people to run, you know, 100, 200 HIMARS while trying to figure out what number their Ukrainians are actually going to get. It's not going to be, you know, 100, 200, because that would be there'd be none left for the U.S. But I think I honestly think somewhere around 40, maybe 50, very optimistically. Um, but really doesn't need to even be that high, because it, even let's just say if it's 40, which is the number um, that could be supported by the people trained. That's still on top of 10 M270s, which, again, basically counts for two HIMARS each because they can hold twice the amount of ammo. And so now you're running into about 50 systems and really the limiting factor there is ammunition, right? With these 10 or so strikes a day that we're seeing, they're using anywhere between three to six missiles each. So that puts you in the ballpark of, you know, 30 to 60, um, you know, rocket rounds going out. I mean, this you can only do for so long. Let's just call it 50. You know, basically, the U.S. only has 10,000 of these things total right now, and they are making more. But 
Um, I would be, I wouldn't be surprised if attackers had to come in simply because they eventually run out of ammo. And again, I think the U.S. would be willing, maybe based on what they've said and what they've spent so far, to give up maybe half of these very, these much older Gimlers round that that are still so effective against these ammo dumps. But you know, luckily they, um, the Russians do not have more ammo dumps than there are missiles, so no, no need to worry. But you know when you talk about like a hundred high Mars or, or whatever, it's just not supportable by any one country on earth's ammunition. And that's okay. Cause it, it doesn't need to be. In other words, there's, there's more than enough ammo to take, to take out all the stuff that should be taken out by the high Mars. Anyway, it's um, right. That, that's kind of the logic here. Well, not only that too, but the other thing you, that we have to keep in mind is right now there's been, Ukraine has claimed that to have taken out at least one S 400 and at least one S 300 with high Mars, which means that, the air defense of Russia is cracking. I mean, those are two of them, some of the most important systems that Russia has. And this is allowing the Ukrainian Air Force, which has a lot of bombs and, and missiles and guns that have not been used and have more have been given from other countries. So basically, you don't need as much HIMARS ammo if your air force is coming out in, in full force and also the, all these ground units. So this situation for the next month or so is going to be really um, reliant on HIMARS, but it the situation, I mean, if it's still the same situation where Russia can bring in the same amount of ammo, I mean, that wouldn't make it would just wouldn't follow any sort of logical flow. So that's why it's it's OK if, you know, the next month is a high Mars blitz and then it sort of slows down. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And my understanding is actually at least three systems in total, one at Ilovaisk in, uh, in Donetsk Oblast and then uh, two in Kherson Oblast, one close to Novakovka somewhere and one uh, close to Oleshki Sands. Well, that's great news. And these are all from you know yesterday or before. Who knows what uh, what they've been up to today? Uh, but we what we do know is that uh, uh, Russian Telegram channels are very annoyed and very frustrated with uh, uh, what they were told should have uh, been shooting the Gimblers out of the sky, and instead it just got shot to bits and blown to bits by the Gimbler. Peace for Ukraine. Good morning, Slava Ukraini. Hello, Slava. Actually, it's good afternoon. I just realized. <laughs> so sorry. Um, well, I'm just looking at a piece of news for like an hour ago, something like that. I just saw it because it's, it, it came into my feed. But uh, after further research, something happened like an hour ago in Kadivka. Is that the correct pronunciation? I hope in Luhansk Oblast, which is more or less 70 kilometers south of Severodonetsk. And apparently there has been a HIMARS o'clock again on a Russian base where apparently um, there are three different clusters of equipment that are burning. material that went up we don't know for the losses as yet of personnel but um it's looking promising for uh, some good um no explosions for the moment the photos just show smoke but um but yeah it's um doing a good uh, good work and i'm what i found interest is the um the uh, distance from Severodonetsk and also from Luhansk is sort of forms a triangle of 70 kilometers there. So I'm just being a good student of Walter Report. Wonderful, wonderful hosts and looking at the map. Thank you. So this is... Obrigado, Peter Ukraine.
Yeah, no, this is perfect because I unfortunately now have to go jump out of planes and things like that. But uh, long story short, this one you bring up, if I have it correct, is one of the more significant ones out of the last 50. And I know the one last night in, in, around Harrison was pretty nice. But this one, if it's the one I'm thinking of that I saw about an hour ago, is very, very important. It's important because it wasn't an ammo dump two or three days ago. What do I mean by that? What I mean is there was, um, if you look at the map, there was some major army bases nearby, and these bases have been hit uh, by HIMARS in the last two weeks or so. And the pictures I saw of this one, again, if I'm thinking of the right one, and in any case, it's important because wherever it is, this is very significant. It was basically a dugout field with some overhang cover, and it was a temporary ammo dump. So what does this mean? It means Russia is trying to adjust to the loss of so many ammo dumps and everything that they are changing their tactics and putting them in fields and in underground, slightly underground areas in an effort to not only disguise them from observation, but also to try to harden them against uh, these sort of strikes. But what this specific strike would tell you, again, if it's the one I'm thinking of, um, is that Ukraine is able to change faster than Russia can change their tactics, right? So it means not only is Ukraine just targeting things that they've been watching for the last eight years, it means that Ukraine is able to adapt and they're getting fresh intelligence from their drones, their people, all these things to adjust. And that's the great thing about HIMARS is, you know, let's say you've been waiting eight years to strike a Russian ammo dump and uh, you find out it's moved. Well, all you got to do is have someone text you the new coordinates and it's gone doesn't really make a difference on the shooting end. So this will be huge as Russia tries to disperse their ammunition, which, as again, I said sort of earlier, is not something they're very good at, at least training-wise. And if Russia can't even do the things they're supposed to be good at at training-wise, the things that they're not supposed to be good at, uh, it's going to be a really bad day. So, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. It's not as uh, sexy as some of the other strikes because it's not as explosive, <laughs> but it's almost, I would say, it's more important, honestly. Thank you. Yeah, indeed. Those those big balls of fires are indeed sexy and bring warmth to our hearts that are wishful and desiring that uh, the Russians get and technical turn, get the fuck out of Ukraine. Um, I just wanted to be a bit more precise. Uh, that is uh, what I've seen in the news is apparently um, the equipment was sitting outside a school because um, the Russians uh, went inside the school in the kindergarten and established a base there. And what we see for the moment is destroyed equipment outside the building, which apparently was a school, um, uh, I believe. And I hope that in any case, there was no one, no children in the school. But uh, yeah, of course, the tactics that the Russians accuse the Ukrainian army to do being occupy civilian structures such as schools, hospitals, theaters. Of course, they do it themselves because that's the way they operate. They will know how abnormal, how awful they are. And I'm sorry, I'm going to start ranting and spreading my hate over the Russians here. And that's not the case. I do not want to take your time. CJ, thank you so much. Thank you, Vis. Uh, thank you, CJ. Uh, go jump out of out of a plane like your fellow's doing over there, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you later after you've safely landed. Um, in the meantime, let's go on to Lisa and then to Vic and then to Vishnagovsky. Lisa, go ahead. Lisa. Oh, here I am there talking, and I didn't turn the mic on. Though, <laughs> okay. Um, I wanted to ask for Lane. Um, 
I was listening to you, how you were describing how life is around and what your day's like. Um, I wanted to ask you, are there many children around um, anywhere or have most of the children been cleared out of there? And if not, um, does it seem to, has it seemed to affected them or do they just go on as if it's something that they're used to? I don't know if she can hear me. Maybe she's not. She's been having some. Uh, she's been having some technical difficulties uh, during the course of the day. Uh, maybe Slavo Kredi can uh, can touch upon this just as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, I would like to ask uh, what you mean uh, from some some areas of Ukraine or maybe some special areas of Ukraine. Yeah, uh, I mean, like any anywhere that like you've heard of, are there still children around, or have most of the children been cleared out of Ukraine into safer places. So most of Ukraine is, you know, living a relatively normal life, as normal as it can be, being that the country is in the state of war and there are cruise missile strikes on various cities in the west and central Ukraine as well still, right? So, yes, there there are, you know, in in most of Ukraine, you can kind of imagine a normal-ish life, but kind of odd and... Uh, different because of the cruise missile strikes and the fact that a lot of people are working for the war effort or many families have people out at the front in the east and the south and right but, but in most of Ukraine there will be you know plenty plenty of children around just if you look at numbers of refugees versus internally displaced persons there there are more Ukrainians within Ukraine who are displaced from their normal um not normal normal areas where they live um, then there are Ukrainians, refugees outside of Ukraine, right? And this can give you a good idea that, uh, that there's plenty of you know children who would uh, normally be in areas that are now close to the front lines or in occupied territories who are simply uh, elsewhere in Ukraine. And this goes for civilians generally. Right? So mostly, mostly farther towards the west and, and central Ukraine as opposed to the east and the south. Thank you, Damon. I was just curious about that populace. Um, and also, along the Russian border, I, I know how they are kidnapping people. And does anyone know the, the approximate number of uh, children that they have taken illegally? Um, so the, the last numbers I saw is um, something in the range of about half a million, uh, 450,000 to half a million. Uh, oh, roughly, okay. but it's it's not entirely clear how what proportion of those are uh, unaccompanied children, e- either those that have been taken from orphanages or those whose parents have been, uh, you know, killed yeah. or otherwise separated uh, from them by the Russians. Yeah, that's that's too bad. Okay, I just wanted to to find that out. Thank you. Just to just to add, like for myself, uh, I live in the west of Ukraine. Uh, when the sun started to uh, make some wo- warm, like a warm weather, uh, a lot of children under my windows, a lot playing like a normal. It's like a for them. It's I, I understand that somehow it's war is changing them, but they start to keep playing like uh, having fun. And uh, as maybe a month ago, I was also in the space shared that was like a news in the from the Kharkiv that uh, 
there is a shelling, people are hiding, and after um, uh, half, half an hour of the, uh, when the sirens uh, got uh, quiet, children got on the streets and keep playing. So like a nothing happened. The people just, children and people just adopt, uh, like adapted to this situation and like are trying to live normal. But it's not normal. Thank you. Thank you, Slava. Thank you. Go ahead. Yeah, hi, everyone. Uh, I have a question again to the, uh, to Slava or to Ferlane. Um, and basically, based on their experience, how do they see um, kind of a situation with people working and the economy? And I'm going to just give a quick uh, background why I'm coming with this. So I was listening recently to a podcast in which um, one guy from Moldova, basically he works as a senior partner at a huge investment fund that was, I think, mainly based in Kyiv. And basically he said at the beginning of a, of a war, war, he felt quite guilty, but he had to kind of evacuate his family to Chisinau. And he felt so guilty because, I mean, he has the Moldavian, he's a Moldavian and he could cross the border. But he was mentioning that many of, let's say, his colleagues or, let's say, uh, uh employees in the various companies they basically are they have to go into you know uh, to be part of uh, uh of an army right um and the impression was that okay uh, quite a few of these companies have been impacted right i'm just wondering from your experience with your like maybe family friends what you're reading how how multiple of these companies are surviving my assumption is for sure the answer is going to be some companies cannot uh, they have to close because maybe the founders, you know, the core of the employees have to be on the front. Uh, but maybe if you have any sorts of like anecdotes about examples, like uh, how how are these companies surviving? How are people getting salaries? Or maybe just general or any sort of comments would be useful. Thanks. Uh, thank you for the question. Uh, so. Um... So uh, when the war started, um... All is stopped. Meaning every every business, everything is stopped. Meaning uh, logistics. We have this uh, great service, Nova Posta. Uh, other um, like a delivery um, delivery system. We greatly enjoyed. So uh, just to you, like uh, give this example. Um, some services are still not working. And some services, like, for example, Nova Pochta, uh, Razit, uh, it's the most popular, like, a service for delivery, uh, post and other, like, a big uh, packages. Uh, now is rising, uh, rising um, um, costs for the service. And it's like a maybe a week, or maybe two, uh, Ukraine, uh, um, uh, exchange for the dollar because it's in Ukraine economy it's uh, tightly uh, all connected to the dollar and before the war it was like uh, 25 28 around this for one dollar 28 uh, for the dollar and now it's got uh, released so it's not it got uh, it was fixed so economy can survive and now it was got released and uh, like a good news it's not a big jump uh, 37 
36 grivnes for the dollar. So it's like a not big change because we got used to this because we had big jump in 2014. But now it's like more stable. It's like a good news, but I have today a safe article about the inflation, future inflation prediction. So I will be like learning it later. But it's... Just now, maybe a week, maybe a month ago, business starting to come back to like a normal function. And it's very hard. It's very hard because uh, a lot a lot of businesses as are not, how to say, uh, <laughs> interesting. Uh, I started to think about it. It's all the dependent on the people. And people are main resource that runs business. Not just brains, it's not just trucks or maybe some vehicles, but all the people. And as you notice, when you people leave, 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 left Ukraine, a lot of the businesses are got crippled. You can confirm it because it cannot be run. It's not be run remotely, like some IT businesses. A lot of the IT businesses got like a crash, but now I now I see that a lot of the starting to be coming back. It's like a bad news, bad news, but it's people trying to get back. I don't know real examples what happening, but but I'm looking out for big stuff like a Nova Posta. They start running again because we have problem with the gas. For the trucks, and somehow they find find the way. So it's good news. But some other services still locked. So it was really strange for me that one day service was existing, working, profitable, and got closed, and still for months and still closed. You cannot call them. They they just closed and maybe moved on. We had Rosetta. It's like shopping. We also like it very well. It's internet shopping, like eBay, but mostly for the Ukraine. Electronics, different, like a washing machine. Everything you want can be fastly delivered to you without the problem. Paying online, deliver it right away. In one day, from Kiev to every side of the Ukraine. But it got it, it even worse. I don't even know how they survived. But they they um, main facilities was in the cave, and during this first months, it was just destroyed. So they lost uh, not just uh, uh, money; they lost uh, inventory. They lost uh, um, buildings where they hold this. So they completely was crushed. But now they again months starting months from now, or months before last months, they starting to roll again. So starting to revive this business, and it's gonna be revived. But some services is still not working, so it's hard. So I don't know how to explain, but I'm gonna be looking into this this inflation. By days. Exactly about Rosetta. So the guy that I was listening to a podcast too. So again, he's a partner at Horizon Capital, and there 
investor into the Rosetta. So that's why I kind of I kind of thought that there might be something to it, you know. So they have yes. been impacted as well, but they still said, I mean, their portfolio has been impacted, but it's still like it, it's below the average of the country. Still, Rosetka, it's a big it's a big issue. So yeah, it was a really big hit. It was uh, like a, a much, uh, when hit was when the key was hit, it really was damaged to the whole country. So main uh, main businesses was like allocated in the funded and located and operated from the key. So it's like uh, this logistics and this like interconnection was mainly operated from the key. And when key key was hit, not main main and not whole key, but all does just got crippled and stopped completely. It was really strange for Ukrainians when this all started. But now they're trying to move. Uh, it's good. Like uh, uh, some reports that in Kyiv, uh, a lot of the interconnection, meaning a lot of the new stuff starting to move. And we just, from is it, that we're going to learn. It's going to be new stuff. So I hope uh, something is going to new stuff will work even better. Thank you. Thanks, Vic. Thank you, Slava. Um, let's go to Mark Vishnikovsky. Uh, and Jane, you're going to have to put your hands up. Mark. Yes. Hey, good afternoon, Doman. Thank you for hosting. Um, I, I just came on to uh, kind of congratulate Slava Ukraina. Um, the other day, I uh, over the weekend, I went into the um, anti-Walter space and just to listen to what they were saying on the other side. And Slava, on his own, pretty much articulated very, very well against a very hostile audience about the Ukrainian view on, uh, on, uh, on the, this war of aggression on Ukraine. So that was really well done, Slava. Good job. Um, yeah, it, 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 was, it was interesting what they were saying. I, I, I'm still amazed at the viewpoints they take and how adamantly and fervently they, they view them. I mean, you know, the whole denazification of, of Ukraine and and Bandera and everything else. I, I almost likened it to the, um, and forgive me uh, for the Europeans, um, you know, the perspective I have is with the United States uh, Civil War, where you had, you know, the slaveholders adamantly claiming how wonderful slavery is for the uh, the slaves and how beneficial um, it was for them. It, it, it just kind of, um, just kind of crazy logic, and yeah, very unfortunate. But uh, their passion is is there anyway. Um, just my thoughts. Well done, Slav. Thank you. Thank you for the support. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Vishnikovsky, go ahead. Hello, hello. Um, I'm having two topics actually that I would like to ask a question about. Um, first topic is this NASA fire monitoring satellite. Um, I keep visiting that website, that service regularly to check on um, the status of the fires. And something which um, kind of like jumped to my attention was that as of, of recently, the last couple of weeks, um, at least if not months, we always saw front of the war reflected by a dense spot of fires on the satellite images and looking at these satellite images yesterday and today there seems to be a change i don't see the front lines especially in the donbass region and luhansk region 
I don't see the front line that clearly delineated by fires anymore. Um, they seem to be gone. Yesterday, there was an absolute lack of fires along those front lines, and the fires were more visible, like really within the Russian-controlled occupied territories. And today, um, there is still a lack of this clear delineation, this clear fire front line. And you see um, some fires like towards Kherson, um, but that's it. And my question is, actually, I, I, I listened into language learners military updates because I always appreciate them. Um, I had a lot. They're always quite insightful. But something that I'm looking for and having as a question is, is there um, a reduced number of artillery usage by the Russian? Can this be evidence or is there some glitch in the system? Does anyone know more about this data? I, I think it makes sense, right? I think it makes perfect sense because um, the volume was always the Russian artillery, right? The volume of the fire simply because they, they just shoot a whole lot more because they don't have stuff that's any precise, so they need to do area fires. I'm, I'm just looking at the map now just because you brought it up. Um, I think what's really interesting to note that, yes, the, the, the front line has on that, that's very active, obviously, right? Um, Russians are still doing a lot of shelling there, but also there's there's a lot of Ukrainian activity Know, shelling, shelling the Russian positions around Kherson. If you look at Novakakhovka on this, the, the, it looks like the whole city, half the city, or or at least not not half the city, but all of that sort of industrial area to the um, west, to the east northeast of the city is all just just giant blocks of fire, right? Uh, and I'm, I think that's probably that huge strike through still from yesterday, um, uh, from yesterday, yeah, from yesterday night, uh, local time, still going off. Um, I think when you look at the east of, of Ukraine, you can see that most of the spots are around the Kramatorsk-Slovyansk area, right? That's uh, that that makes sense uh, on Bakhmut because that's where Russians are hitting quite hard still. But if you look at the ones further south, they're well behind Russia, and those are all of those ammo depots. I'm guessing that, and you know, other other command posts, possibly other things that are being struck by uh, by by HIMARS as well. Um, so. In a, in a way, I guess it's good. I guess it's also consistent with this, the quote-unquote operational pause uh, that, um, uh, that the Russians kind of announced for themselves. Um, it, it, simply, they don't have the, the stuff to keep shooting with as well, to some degree, right? Uh, simply put, there's, a, uh, there's a, a limited amount of ammunition all of a sudden uh, that the Russians are now experiencing. And hopefully if this persists, it will mean that Ukrainians have actually taken out a lot of Russian logistics ability and a lot of their uh, ammunition dumps, right? And that would be for the best for everyone, obviously. Um, since we're talking about the firms, there was a note that um, the explosion in Novakakovka overnight was so bright that it errored out the uh, CCD chip on the, um, on the satellite uh, and it just went pure white. On the on the imagery that the satellite was taking, uh, which is impressive in its own right, I would argue. Vishnikovsky? Yeah, so I think then it's worth really monitoring that data. And I personally, being a data guy, I think it's quite impressive, an impressive shift that we're watching here. And I mean, of course, in with regards to Ukraine, I always had a lot of wishful thinking as well. But if it's supported by data, then I get quite excited. So. I hope we keep watching it and I appreciate 
maybe checking in on the topic in the coming days to see where where we're going. But it's it's looking it's looking tentatively good, I'd say. Um, yeah, I I, I agree with you. Just a quick comment on this. I completely agree. The only thing we have to kind of make sure that we don't overstate is uh, the causes for it as opposed to what we're observing, right? Um, we shouldn't in- interpret the causality too quickly. Maybe it is actually, you know, them not having enough forces to uh, go into a proper attack, and therefore that's why they're not uh, conducting wider shellings as opposed to necessarily being out of ammunition. And that's why it's just a, a little word of wording. Um, but you've seen the you've seen the big explosion in Novokakovka, right, Vishnikovsky? Yes, I've seen that, and I do 100% agree with you that we should not um, jump to conclusions from just one source of data, right? That's why I'm saying I listened into language learners update and that did not yet fully reflect the stop of artillery strike. And that's why I think it's um, worthwhile to keep monitoring that data source to exclude any errors, including the wiping, like wipe out of the chip, right? Um, so I think it's worth observing that data source. But surely, if this, I think if this data change persists, then it's an evidence of something big. That's, that's what I want to conclude on this topic. If it persists, then it's a big change that we see. Yeah, I concur. Absolutely. Um, and I know that you're careful with this. I'm just you know, highlighting it for people who are less used to dealing with um, large quantities of data and less, uh, less used to interpreting causal versus correlated relationships. Um, you had a second point you said, go ahead. Absolutely. Um, the second point is from another observation um, from various articles, which stated that um, Russia lacks precision guided missiles. And they shifted to, as we've seen in the past, with I think the attack on Klimenchuk, um, the, the shopping mall, um, they increasingly switched to to missiles that were not intended for the use that they're using them. Now they're shifting to, I think, modifying S-300s, um, plus I think modifying naval missiles to hit land targets. And, and here I read something which I believe to be true, um, that those missiles do have different radar homing algorithms than missiles that are actually designed for land target, thus striking anything that has a big enough radar reflection or the biggest radar reflection within the designated target area. And I just had some crazy idea um, that maybe I should bounce off of Portland once it comes up or whoever is an expert in electronic and, and radar, which is... Hey, well, well, Vishnikovsky, funny okay. that you bring that up because in two hours and eight minutes time, at 4.30 Central European time, 5.30 Kiev, 3.30 London, um, 10.30 a.m. in New York, we will be joined by Colonel Jeff Fisher, um, retired, I believe, uh, of the U.S. Air Force and then specialist in electronic warfare. I should try to come up then, but I still want to throw this question now into the room. Yeah, please do. It might be worth considering the idea that in any in any city that is being targeted by Russia, in any populated areas that is being targeted by Russia, it might be worth to to look into the um, setup of decoys. Um, we saw that in Kremenchuk, the the shopping mall was 
most likely hit because it had the biggest radar reflection. Um, so can we put something up that has a bigger radar reflection than the shopping mall in some area that is designated as sort of a missile dump? Should a missile be missed by the anti-air system, that at least these missiles are guided into some depopulated areas, designated missile dump areas. Um, yeah, I, I just wish that would be something that could be made work um, in face of the usage of um, air-to-air missiles and naval missiles to strike land targets. I mean, to me, intuitively, that sounds like a great idea. Like, put, put up a big polished metal plate outside of every city, right? And just kind of have that as a bullseye for all of these uh, for all of these missiles. I don't know if it would work, but, you know, in first principle physics, it, it's, a, it's a cool idea. It, it sounds like it could work. You could choose one particular empty warehouse. You could choose an um, apartment building that's reasonably unpopulated. Anything that's sticking out from the ground far enough and then put as much radar reflective material on there. And by this, you just minimize, you know, like you minimize the risk of undesired targets to be hit in the worst case. And you might have some casualties, so you might have some destruction that still happens, happens from that, but you at least kind of know where the missiles will go and you tell the people, hey, if we have air raid, avoid these areas. That's it. I think it's a cool idea. Um, I don't know if it's practicable, uh, but I'd really love uh, Colonel Jeff to, to think about this a little bit and, and maybe give us a, give us some responses on that as well. Uh, Knuth, do you want to comment on this as well? Knuth, mic check? No, can you hear me? Yes, I can. So, Go sorry, ahead. I just turned on and off. Um, I just listened to Vishnikovsky, and as far as I remember, in um, Kremanchuk, in that shopping center, they used a ship, anti-ship missile which are radar guided, not GPS guided. So they have like a template. They are looking like for the biggest ship in the fleet. And I guess um, he's right. The, the, the ship was the biggest fleet there. If they use normal like train tracking or GPS guided missiles or oh, what's it called? Like, you know, like really simple targeting mechanisms, I guess decoys just don't work because that's only, that might only, you know, that, that's how <clears throat> like frigate and carriers work when they uh, when there's like anti-ship missiles approaching they have also like chef dif- um chef dispensers like um, airplanes do so there it works um but i don't believe that's something that could work on the broader range on uh, land target i mean I, I think it's a very interesting idea if if you know something can be done in that respect and i if Vishnikovsky, if you don't I'll, I'll try to to ask colonel jeff about it in a couple of hours time and I'll actually jump off very soon again because I have a meeting. I just wanted, you know, we were talking about the, the mindset of Ukrainians before. And I just, I had a meeting with my HR team in Kiev this morning, of course, remotely. And it was really funny when I joined the room, they had a discussion about which earplugs work best to screen out the air raid siren so that you can keep sleeping. So that's, I really love their attitude. It's really cool to work with them. And that's a good part about being an IT company. You can still work remotely from everywhere, right? That's all. I'll, I'll go offline. See you later. Thank you. Uh, Vishnikovsky and then Aaron. Yeah, I just wanted to, to repeat. Um, I do know that those decoys would, of course, not work if you have some GPS guided or precision land strike missiles. But something which we're observing is that Russia is using um, not 
um, land guided or like not land targeting missiles, but naval missiles and air-to-air -air missiles that get modified. So if they really run out of their precision um, GPS guided missiles and have to resort back to this other strategy, if there's a big percentage, and I think it's enough, it's if it's 30% or so missiles that are built for um, ship targets or that are just insufficiently precise with 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 radar targeting, I think then it's worth probably still pursuing it. So I think Russia will keep trying to use those um, anti-ship, anti-air missiles to target land targets. And yeah, I'm, I'm happy for for you to, to ask um, Jeff Doman. Thank you. Thanks, Vinjakovsky. No, I, I hope you, you come up and you ask him because it's your idea and uh, you should be the one uh, told off for making you know, silly suggestions. Um, if they are silly and you should be getting all the credit if uh, they're sensible. Aaron. Yeah, hello, Domin. Um, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but um, Spain have officially confirmed they're going to send 10 Leo 2A boards and 20 M113s to um, Ukraine. But I think, I think the have Leo they officially stuff... confirmed? Is it, it's getting reported everywhere, so I'll, I'll do a bit more digging. But it's it's gaining traction. That's a, that's that's a big thing. Um, but they need they need upgrading, and <laughs> Germany still give them permission to send them. I think. So this is kind of the complicated question here. So it was reported in Info Defensa uh, about well, the most recent update was actually half an hour ago. Um, that this is what they're intending to do or that they're wanting to do. Um, but there hasn't been any, I think this is from the defense minister, the Spanish defense minister, I think was who said it. Um, but it's not entirely, uh, yeah, the Spanish defense minister, but it's not entirely sure that they've actually said that they will do it as opposed to um, that they're considering doing it or that they want to do it, something along those lines. Does that make sense? So... Um, I'm not entirely sure yet, as yet, that they're actually going to be sending them, especially because they need quite a bit of uh, cleaning up, because my understanding is these tanks have been stuck in some sort of warehouse close to Zaragoza um, for the past, you know, 15 years, give or take, and they're probably not in no perfectly drivable condition necessarily. Maybe they are. I mean, if they are, so much the better. They're also apparently only considering sending 10 of them, and if I remember correctly, they had... 40-odd um, of these in storage there. Of course, it did say that quite a lot of them um, were um, uh, not necessarily in best condition, and maybe only some of them are in good enough condition to um, to actually be sent. So it's kind of a, kind of a complicated situation with them. Um, but of course, as you said, the German government, and specifically the German Minister of uh, the Economy, Habeck, still has to approve that for that to actually go forward. Um, no, I don't know. It's it, it's really unclear whether they're going to be actually delivered in the end or not. And and also, I don't really understand um, the benefit of only sending ten of them, especially because that's um, you know it's not very many, let's say, for for any sort of tank applications. Now, if it's if this is just to get the ball rolling and to get others to send more Leo two, so much the better. Um, however, they are. Um, However, there are other um, uh, tanks that Spain does have. The Leo 2E, I think it's called, uh, which are actually made in Spain. And maybe it would be easier to persuade the Germans to allow those to be sent, even though they're made under license, 
my understanding is, um, under license in Spain. Uh, there are some modifications. Maybe it's easier to persuade Germans to be to be sending those as opposed to um, as opposed to some other ones. So yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of confusing, um, but it's very much the sort of. I mean, they were first announced like early June, this transfer. So more than a month more than a month ago, um, and I think that that's something that should be highlighted here as well. It's um, it's an old discussion. It's not a new discussion we're having about this. It's a very old discussion we're having about this. And we're just having this discussion again because the Spanish Minister of Defense actually said something for a change as opposed to this just being speculations in El País. Um, Spring, thank you for coming up. Uh, somebody can actually you know, read Spanish and can uh, help us decipher what was actually meant. Um, 